is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse. And you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell. We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animal, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss my baby kisses me Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. All my friends know the Lowrider. The Lowrider is a little higher. But arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top 
that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker. Put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part, the... That part. So, uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody, nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so, uh, erase that track. So I said, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head." And they're like, and the the uh, one of the producers. There was three. There was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced. Uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, beat, a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it. That's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts. Stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell.
This is Our American Stories, and it's that time of year. We love bringing you the very best commencement speeches we can find over the years. And we'll dredge up some of the worst, too, because there are some really terrible ones. Most are completely unmemorable. We've all been there. But some are really dazzling. And we're going to bring you some of them. Steve Jobs's was amazing at Stanford. So many good ones. Denzel Washington's, my favorite, from the University of Pennsylvania. But here it's Ginny Rometty talking at Northwestern University. And if you don't know who Ginny is, she's the first woman to head IBM. And in 2015, she returned to where she earned her degree in computer science and electrical engineering. Rometty's alma mater presented her with an honorary doctorate, and she told the graduating students three stories, starting first with a deeply personal one. So this first story, it comes from my childhood. Like many, I grew up in a middle-class family not far from here in a suburb of Chicago. I am the oldest, I have two sisters, I have a brother. And like many of our time, time for school, we went to Sears for our school clothes. And I can remember one, just one family vacation, and it was a camp out. Now don't feel sorry for us. That was a simple and a very happy life. But then, one day, all that changed. I was a teenager, and my father left my mother. In fact, he left us all. Now my mother, who had never worked a day in her life outside of our home, she found herself with four children, but soon, no money, no home, no food. So while she never, ever complained, she never spoke of what happened, I must say my brothers and sisters, we watched and we learned. And she had to find a way to keep a roof over our head. But she was so proud, she did what she had to do, which is what we all do. She found a way to go back to school in the day to get a degree, and then she worked at night so we could quickly get by on our own. My mother was so determined to never let anyone define her as a failure, a single mother, or anything worse, a victim. So through her actions, she taught us all. Never let anyone define you. Only you define who you are. My mom did get that associate degree, and she retired after 25 years from a hospital near Chicago here. And my brother and two sisters, they share among themselves five degrees from Dartmouth, Georgia Tech, and Northwestern. And thank goodness for this doctorate, because I was losing that race on number of degrees. Okay, so this is the biggest thing today now. I'm back at the hop. You're not a victim, I think is what she's saying. And by the way, it's personal for me, my wife's mom. The men left. She was married three times, didn't support the kids. All four kids went to college. The mom worked continually, put herself through college, advanced herself. You're not defined by the things that happened to you, and you can overcome them. Next, Jenny shared a story from early in her career. I had worked for a senior executive, and he decided to go to a new job. He came in to me one day, and he said, wonderful. You are the candidate to replace me. So I was called in the office and with great excitement told I'd be offered this job. Well, I can remember my reaction. It wasn't the same great excitement. I looked at him and I said, it's too early. If I'm not ready, just give me a few more years and I'd be ready for this. I need to go home and I need to go sleep on it. Well, that evening, my husband, now up there, 
well, he's up in the stands. I don't mean to go too far. <laughs> My husband of 35 years. Oh boy. <laughs> he says I never mention him, and then I do, and I mess it up, you know. Uh, he sat and listened patiently to my story, like he always does. And then he looked at me and he said one thing. He said, do you think a man would have answered the question that way? He said, I know you. In six months, you'll be ready for something else. And you know what? He was right. And I went in the next day, and I took that job. Growth and comfort never coexist. I want you to close your eyes, if they're not already, and ask yourself, when have you learned the most? I guarantee it's when you felt at risk. So when you feel anxious, maybe tomorrow, when you leave and start a new job, I guarantee that that is a good sign. What great words. Growth and comfort never coexist. And her final story, the third, and again we're listening to IBM's Ginny Rometty at Northwestern University in 2015. She looked to the future of her company and our world. It's early 2011. IBM Research has built a computing system, something that the world has never seen. It's called Watson. Now, Watson is named after T.J. Watson, IBM's founder. And I am sitting not in a lab. I am in a TV studio. I'm in a TV studio, and I'm watching Watson play Jeopardy against the two most successful human champions there have ever been. Watson talks, converses with Alex Trebek, Watson understands puns, metaphors, clues, buzzes, wagers, wins. It is an amazing moment. And one more time on the way home, I call my husband and I say, and I remember it to this day, I think I just saw history. Well, I will come back to that story of Watson in a second. I believe years from now, historians will look back and they will look at this as a dawn of a new era. It will be one made possible by two things. First, it's the development of a new era of computing, something we call cognitive. The world has only known two eras of computing. The first, it was a tabulating era. They were machines that counted, things that did the national census. This is what did the social security system. The second era, programmable systems. It's everything you know to this day. If this do that, they do exactly what we tell them to do. But now, you and we are entering a third era. These are systems that you don't program them. They learn. They analyze more data than you'll ever remember or handle. And they understand natural language, like I speak today. More importantly, like humans, these systems reason. Some people call this artificial intelligence, AI. The reality is, this technology will enhance our thinking. And it will not be a world of man versus machine. It will be a world of man plus machine. In fact, I predict in our near future, every important decision mankind makes will be informed by a cognitive system like Watson. And our lives in the world will actually be better off for it. Now, while this is really hard to appreciate now, I think this dawn means you sit at a very unique point in history. But note, there's one more thing. The age you're facing is made possible by one other, a new natural resource. You recognize it around you. It is just the sheer amount of data. Every day, 500 million DVDs worth of data is created. This is why I think of it as 
a natural resource, and it will be the phenomena of our time. Which now just brings me back to Watson. Since that day in Jeopardy, 2011, Watson's come a long way. Finance, retail, insurance, but most of all, hard at work in healthcare. And in fact, we've had the honor of helping renowned institutions like Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Cancer Center, MD Anderson, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, the New York Genome Center, and the list goes on. Doctors will struggle with that same exponential increase in information. By 2020 medical information, it will double every 72 days. But with the era we're about to enter, collaborators like Watson, ability to digest all that information, and form hypotheses about your diagnosis, your treatment, our doctors will have a chance. IBM has been privileged to pay some of the greatest roles in history, whether it was in fact to help do that census, to help land the man on the moon. But make no mistake, Watson and healthcare will be our modern day moonshot. And we will do our part to change the face of healthcare. These are the moments we work for. Work on something that matters. Have a purpose. And you are all high achievers. You wanted to get here to this day, you got here. And you will have many more goals in the years ahead. But do not confuse a goal with purpose. You may find that purpose in business or public service academia, you choose. But I hope, and my hope for you, is that you leave today with a purpose to change the world in some way. And there you have it, Ginny Rometty's speech at Northwestern Class of 2015. And go to Our American Network to hear all that we do and listen to all of our stories. And we'll show you how to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Go to ouramericannetwork.org for that too. And to sign up for our newsletter, where we can keep you posted on what we're doing and share with you the very best that we do each week. Again, this is Our American Stories. Commencement month, we'll be playing these speeches all month long, the very best and a few of the worst here on Our American Stories. American stories and our next story well it's a great music story and we're calling this one the billion dollar quintet here's Greg Hengler with more the traveling Wilburys had a short history but a long past the creation of the rock group was a fortunate accident nicknamed the billion dollar quintet the five musical legends three of whom were in their 40s had gathered to assist a former Beatle in writing and recording what was intended as a throwaway B-side track. Tom Petty at age 38, whose career was at its peak, was by far the youngest member of the group. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus, in America too. 
Roy Orbison, at 52, who was called the greatest singer in the world by Elvis, was the oldest. Here's Roy singing You Got It, the hit he co-wrote with future fellow Wilburys, Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty. Anything you want, you got it. And then there was former Beatle, George Harrison. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. In 1963, a young Bob Dylan would ask future bandmate Roy Orbison to record the song he wrote, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Orbison would later regret his decision to reject this Dylan masterpiece. I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child I'm told. I give her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. Finally, there's probably the least known member of the traveling Wilburys but no less talented. Singer-songwriter and record super-producer Jeff Lynne. Lynne co-founded the Electric Light Orchestra, or ELO, a rock band inspired by the Beatles' complex orchestral sound of the late 60s. Between 1972 and 1986, Jeff Lynne's ELO put more singles in the top 40 charts than any other band in the world. George Harrison's career was on fire in the late 1980s. His comeback album, Cloud Nine, was certified platinum in the U.S., thanks to the production work of Jeff Lynne. Then, in a pivotal moment in rock history, Warner Brothers told Harrison he needed to record a B-side track for his single, This Is Love. On the evening before the recording session, Harrison dined at a French restaurant in Los Angeles with Jeff Lynne, who had brought along Roy Orbison. With the three legends sitting together at one table, Harrison asked Orbison and Lynne to help him record the B-side. They agreed. For the sake of convenience, Lynne suggested they record the track at Bob Dylan's garage studio. Harrison telephoned Dylan, who agreed to the idea. Needing a guitar that he had left with Tom Petty, Harrison called and was pleasantly surprised Hello? that Petty also wanted to attend. Drums, please! The recording session took place on April 5th, 1988. After dining on some barbecued chicken in Dylan's backyard garden, the five musicians worked out the song's lyrics. Thankfully for us, George Harrison understood that history was being made, and so he took out his personal video recorder and began shooting. Does it say record in here, George? Is it supposed to say record in the viewfinder? Yeah. Oh, I see at the top. Oh, yeah, there it goes. Here's George Harrison. The thing about the Wilburys for me is if we'd have tried to plan that or if anybody had tried to, you know, say, let's form this band and get these people in it, 
it would never happen. It's impossible. My guitar was at Tom Petty's house, so Tom, Jeff picked me up. We went over to Bob's. I got the first line. Just said, "Bean beat up, battered round." Bean beat up and battered round. And then, wham! They just kept coming with all these lines. <laughs> and uh, there was Bob saying, oh, "What's it called? What's it about?" And I finally saw behind his door this big box with a sticker on it saying "Handle with Car." I said, "Handle with Car?" He said, "Oh yeah, good." I liked the song and the way it had turned out with all these people on it so much. I just carried it around in my pocket for ages, thinking, "Well, what can I do with this thing?" And the only thing to do I could think of was do another nine, make an album. Here's Tom Petty. And I said, "Yeah, that sounds like a real good idea," because it had really been such magic doing the first track. Petty recalled how the group's lineup was finalized. We all jumped in a car to go see Roy play in Anaheim. All four of us ran into Roy's dressing room and said, "We want you to be in our band, Roy." He said, "That would be great." Harrison made the final proposal official by dropping to his knees and formally asking Orbison to join the band. The five men soon celebrated with a band meeting at Denny's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Dylan proposed they call the band Roy and the Boys, but they settled on the quirky name The Traveling Wilburys. All five men are rhythm guitarists, but there are no excessive solos, and the boys did a fantastic job at sharing the spotlight. Harrison did emerge as the chief Wilbury, and when the band returned to record the rest of their album, his video recorder was on again to capture the memories, starting with Tom Petty's arrival on day one. All in a day's work for a Wilburn. And we had like nine or ten days that we knew we could get Bob for, and uh, everybody else was relatively free. So we just said, "Well, let's do it. We'll just write us tune a day and do it that way." It was very exciting. We were in Dave Stewart's house, and it was a nice environment because you could kind of sit outside. It was warm, and the doors were always open. So we set up in his kitchen. It wasn't soundproofed or anything. And we just put like five chairs around the kitchen and then put the microphones up, and uh, and that's it. So all them guitar parts, you know, all them acoustic guitars were just in this kitchen. Here's Roy Orbison. We did from music. That's what it was all about. There wasn't a lot of deciding of what to do, not a lot of time spent planning out anything. So we just uh, wrote the best songs that we could write and uh, sang them as best we could. There's Barbara and I got out of the car. Oh no, she was long and tall. She was oh, tall. short and fat. <laughs> she was dressed to kill. Yeah, that's good. She was dressed to kill. Give me a thrill. She was over the hill. She was dressed to kill. She was over the hill. Here's Jeff Lynne. Just sitting around in a circle, like five of us, just strumming acoustic guitars and coming up with a song. In in like a couple of hours, that was almost ready to record, you know, and then recording it like on the evening. It's pretty sort of unbelievable stuff. I looked at her eyes. They were full of surprise. They were full of surprise. It seems to her eyes like they were filled with surprise. 
Here's Tom Petty recording the song Last Night as the band members look on. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the billion-dollar quintet, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And to sign up for all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and uh, hit our email list and we'll get to you and let you know what we're doing here on the show. And now let's return to the billion dollar quintet, the story of the traveling Wilburys. Sometimes we'd sing the same song, you know, just to see who sounded good or if this key fits somebody. That was a lot of the fun of And And George would kind of audition us, which could be really intimidating, you know, because, like, you know, Roy Orbison had sing the song, and then they'd send you out to sing it, you know. And it's like, well, damn, that's really intimidating. Tweeter and the Monkey Man was recorded in only two takes and was notable for its many references to Bruce Springsteen's songs. Here's Harrison discussing the Dylan recording as we also hear Dylan getting feedback. Tweeting the Monkey Man was like really Tom, Petty and uh, Bob. Well, Jeff and I were there too, but we were just sitting around in the kitchen and he, for some reason, was talking about all this stuff which didn't make much sense to me. You know, it was that Americana kind of stuff. And we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying. It was just fantastic watching him do it because he had like one take warming himself up and on take two he sang that tweet in the monkey man right through and that's it let's get the near the souvenir stand George Harrison and Roy Orbison first met in May 1963 when the Beatles were scheduled as the opening act for Orbison. What Orbison did not know at the time was that the Fab Four's second single, Please Please Me, 
had been written by John Lennon in an attempt to emulate Orbison. Ringo Starr would later admit Roy Orbison was the only act that the Beatles didn't want to follow. Here's Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne discussing Roy Orbison as Roy records the Traveling Wilburys tune, Not Alone Anymore. If you're just sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy's singing, even when he sang soft, it's such a tone, such a sound, you know, such a, a gift, really. We used to always tell him, Roy, you must be the, the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. Jeff Lynne's production skills always makes a great track even better. hated the notion of the supergroup, which were popular in the 1970s. I never meant to be so bad to you. They wanted to soften the notion that they fit into this category. After all, most so-called supergroups don't exactly live up to the term. Michael Palin, one of the members of the comedy group Monty Python, was hired by Harrison to write the band's fictional biography. Palin chronicled the short story of five half-brothers who had one father, but five different mothers. Consequently, out of sheer self-amusement, all five members of the group decided to use aliases. Their real names did not appear anywhere on the album or cover. Here's Harrison and Lynn discussing the bittersweet track, Congratulations. The only Wilbury song Dylan has performed in concert. One of the most amazing things ever about the Wilburys was this holes apart thing of Roy and Bob Dylan. That's what I thought was wonderful, the best singer and the best lyricist, and both in the same group. End of the Line became the album's second single. Orbison stated at the time, I've been rediscovered by young kids who had never heard of me before the Wilburys. Walking down the street. But just four days before they shot the music video for End of the Line, and just three weeks after the album's release, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack. Although he had complained of chest pains over the previous month, mentioning the discomfort to his close friend Johnny Cash, Orbison did not take the symptoms seriously. Here's Tom Petty. You 
not on top, and, and I'm sure he knew that. The last conversation I had with him was a couple of days before he died on the phone, and he was just so thrilled that the Wilburys had gone platinum, and he was just, isn't it great? It's great. We all felt that Roy was a real special part of the group, and it was just our ace in the hole to have that voice come in. And he was so nice, you know, and it was uh, so painful when he died. The video for End of the Line was shot inside a vintage passenger car on a moving train. Maybe somewhere down the road away. During Orbison's vocal solos, the camera focused on a framed portrait of the singer, which was perched near a weathered rocking chair that held a resting, upright guitar. Orbison became the first musician since Elvis in 1977 to land two posthumous albums in the top five. And the traveling Wilburys album, Handle with Care, would also win accolades such as a Grammy and were ranked number two by Rolling Stone in the category of Best New American Band, right behind Guns N' Roses. Unfortunately, the band never lived up to the traveling aspect of their name. They never toured, not one live appearance. Here's Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Roy Orbison. The whole experience was just some of the best days of my life, really. She wrote a long letter. And I think it probably was for us all. On a short piece of paper. The thing I guess would be hardest for people to understand is what good friends we were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. None of this would have happened without him. It was George's band. It was always George's band. And it was a dream he'd had for a long time. From my point of view, I just tried to preserve our relationship. I worked so hard to make sure that, you know, all the guys who were in that band and, and consequently on record and film, their friendship wasn't abused. Just to preserve our friendship, that was the underlying contribution, I think, what I was trying to do. The traveling Wilburys remain a cherished part of rock lore. The gathering of five rock legends offered a lesson. Some supergroups really can succeed, make great music and sell lots of records. They would record just two albums and release 25 songs. In its list of the best albums of the 1980s, Rolling Stone placed the Traveling Wilburys' first album at number 70. Petty's solo effort, Full Moon Fever, which was the best-selling album of his career and an album also produced by Jeff Lynne, came in at 92. What Remains of the Traveling Wilburys is a mystique of unfulfilled possibilities, much like a rock band that does not come out for an encore, even as the fans remain standing on their feet, clapping wildly and cheering at the top of their lungs. 
I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series. And we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people, but every once in a while it's about a musician. And by the way, our music hours have included everything from Frank Sinatra to Tom Petty to Kirk Cobain, Miles Davis, John Denver, Greg Allman, Vladimir Horowitz, John Paul White, Merle Haggard, Chris Stapleton, my favorite Aretha Franklin and Carol King, Chuck Berry, and of course Johnny Cash. And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other song so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's calling now? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now was a big hit, my mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, 
I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big head. She would see me writing in my diary, and she said, you're writing in your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, you, do you thank her for, for uh, doing yes. that? Yes, <laughs> I do. Her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in, in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken-down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion, like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion at that age. <laughs> the accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, So I'm just curious how vivid your memories are. I remember if it were yesterday. Do you remember being nervous before? No, I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. (laughs) Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck in Newark, New Jersey. And what was also ever-present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have a sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, done. Where do you taste this cocoa? Melt in your mouth. I call it communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, Hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Nero, so he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old, easy to pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Frankenero tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddie. It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddie, like that. You have a standing invitation. MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, 
Largely because it was the name of his son whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now? And then the scary realization. Where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. our American stories and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis and when they left off she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with Who's Sorry Now but would she have another one? Donnie Kirshner and he was a publisher with a broken down office and a broken desk and a broken chair and he called me and he said I have two kids they're phenomenal Uh, they're great songwriters I said everybody has great songwriters so he said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was, when Who's Sorry Now hit, we had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and i get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play the song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. i got to write in my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he, Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year for Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. My father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57, I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. 
Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing a solo in Neo in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he'd get his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single Mama would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in, in their colloquial language. How, how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even till today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all. 
because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no a guttural sound like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. <laughs> You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union, did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day. And it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was, not, was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta. Coming. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they, they had heard my, my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know. It was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary breaking her title track for the movie where the boys are would reach number four on the charts and the fort lauderdale florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break and it caught on a little too immediately when i went to do the movies well fort lauderdale was a prairie it was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city that was the police force when where the Boys I was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale. 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale, and they had to call in the National Guard. They had to call in the Coast Guard. I-95 was a parking lot, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crimes. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims' Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it. I'm yeah. a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, but I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have a, had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends. And also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh. What kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. 
It was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith uh, on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am. I want my name." No, it's hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, "Look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star." So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. <laughs> to close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren Wanted to elope after one of her shows. He ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his right. daughter? <laughs> yeah. So it could have been any male. <laughs> but especially Bobby. What I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write... Although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's, Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, save for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys. And 18-year-old kids, the average age of the Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what, was, what, was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims... An American Dreamer.
And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam. And it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad. My father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. And I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard, the Aretha Franklin Carol King story, Remarkable, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you, Miles Davis too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. American stories, and from time to time, our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good, so spiritually good, that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes, and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment. Join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art. Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC. It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, 
it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop pooty from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement in my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So, um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, 
we tour and we get all these tapes given to us and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. So we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space. They're, I think we have six pallets with with your so people mail these things to you constantly how, how many do you think you get uh, every week sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it um so it'll slow down to a trickle of you know at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so and then at the highest you know 200 or so a week so they're always coming in so the, the obvious question why jerry mcguire uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding vhs tapes at the movie and where do they even come from so the Jerry Wires was it was really just the uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there there are many many Jerry Wire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them. And the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the Pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, 
who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry Maguire video store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything is terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, and they come back. And then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer, a.k.a. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page for our American stories and Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey. We love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is Our American Stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. A lot more of them.